Look at the individual standing beside you and ask them, does no one condemn you? Does no one condemn you? Does no one condemn you? What a privilege it is to be here in the presence of the Lord. Our hearts have been blessed already this morning in word and praise and worship. But if you will lend me your heart and your ears for a few moments today, by the grace of God, we will attempt to share with you some things the Lord has given to us. The word of the Lord says in verse number 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let us bow our heads together. Loving Savior, thanking you again this morning for this wonderful privilege and opportunity that we have been given to assemble together here as a company of your people to worship you and to lift up your name in song and in praise this morning. And as we have already heard such rich and rewarding things from your word, I stand before you this morning as your humble servant, as an instrument for your glory and your purpose to minister what you have given to us today. And Lord, it is by your grace and by your strength and by your Holy Spirit that it will be accomplished. And I ask that you anoint each one to receive and to hear your word today. It is in Jesus' name we ask it. And everyone said amen. Amen. One more time, if you'll look at the person next to you and ask them the question, does no one condemn you? And you may be seated. In my opinion, it is so important to understand that deliverance from condemnation begins with compassion. And compassion, it's important to understand, is more than pity. You see, pity is passive. Compassion, on the other hand, is, if you will, sympathy with shoes on. It is active and involved. If you have ever felt condemned and rejected, you most likely know the value of someone else's compassion. Someone who has reached out and helped. Whether you've been physically or emotionally or spiritually hurt, compassion, if you will, is the salve of human kindness rubbed into those wounds. The balm that brings about healing and recovery. Amen? In fact, the prophet Jeremiah of old asked the question, 
as it related to Israel's condemnation. In verse 22 of chapter 8 of Jeremiah, he said, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Amen. You see, compassion is a quality that makes life bearable. Now, I want you to notice how unbearable the circumstances were, were over which Jeremiah wept in Lamentations chapter 3 when he said in verses number 19 and 20, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Then in spite of his depressing surroundings, which brought about the words which I just read in your hearing, Jeremiah remembered something that sparked a flame of hope. And verses 21 and 23 revealed that when he says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. Jeremiah, remembering, said his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And as the songwriter so beautifully penned, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. The Course says, Great is thy faithfulness, and great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning. New mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Just as the rising sun radiates the faithfulness of God to warm and to brighten His creation, so the Lord's loving kindnesses and compassions come faithfully to us morning after morning. You see, our lives, however dark and however cold they may be, always have the hope of His sunshine on the horizon. Again, regardless of how dark and however cold our lives may be, we always have the hope of His sunshine on the horizon. Amen. The Bible, as we know, is a record of the kindness and compassion that God has shown on His people. If you don't believe me on that, when you get a chance, look at Psalms 136 and read it. And study it a little bit and you will find that out. You see, Jesus in His parable of the Good Samaritan that is found in Luke chapter 10, illustrated and gave us a portrait of compassion. Amen. However, the compassion that should flow so freely from our hearts as born-again believers to those in need, is often reduced by our perception of that individual in need. Hmm. A little harsh reality there. It's all oftentimes influenced by our perception of that individual in need. For example, a shooting victim may evoke less compassion when we find out that the individual is a gang member. Or they have a long history of violence. An AIDS victim somehow seems less tragic when we discover the individual to be a prostitute or an intravenous drug user. 
So how often, how quick we are to condemn and how slow we are to show compassion from a human perspective. Amen. In John chapter 8, we have the, what I'm going to call, tell you right now, is the ideal illustration of someone whose checkered past brought about sharp condemnation from a, from a crowd of very religious folks. And just to bring you and to take your mind back for a moment, the setting is early morning, it's in Jerusalem, very early in the morning. With the dew still on the steps of the temple and the purple shadows yawning in the colonnaded courtyards of the temple. From the stone corridors echoes the resonant voice of the Master, Jesus Christ, as He is teaching the people who had gathered to Him there in the wee hours of that morning. Suddenly, out of nowhere, without warning, a scheming cohort of stern-faced religious men pushed their way into the circle there where Jesus was teaching and dragging with them a messy woman. And here's how the Bible actually states this event. It said, Then the scribes and the Pharisees, in John 8, verses 3 through 6, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. There's nothing like being ignored. Ask my wife. There's nothing as annoying as being ignored. <clears throat> he was just adding insult to injury by acting as if he did not hear a word they said. And he bent down and he stooped and began to write on the ground with his finger. You see, the plan was to entrap Jesus. And what better bait than a helpless woman entangled in a sticky web of Levitical law? Oh, yes. You see, it's important to note that the scribes and Pharisees' religion, if you will, was a tightly strung corset of rigid, rigid rules and regulations. Everybody go like this. You see, and the freedom Jesus espoused threatened to snap those supposedly sacred strings, and it made them nervous. You see, realizing Jesus' threat, these religious leaders thought they would test Jesus on one of the more serious tenets of the law, and the law about adultery, a very serious thing, was never to be taken lightly. In fact, it has been revealed in history that in the eyes of the Jewish law, adultery was a very, very serious crime. The rabbi said every Jew must die before he will commit idolatry, murder, or adultery. In Greek, the term that used in that verse, that when it says that this woman was caught in adultery, 
means she was seized or overcame or overtaken, if you will. They just didn't peek through the window shades and see what was going on. They literally went in and took a hold of her and caught them in the very act. In fact, it suggests that the men literally pulled the adulterous couple apart. You see, in the tense of the verb suggests that those present were the ones who did the catching and that they were still holding on to the woman in their grasp. This wasn't hearsay. It wasn't somebody told somebody, somebody told somebody else, and they happened to hear about it. However, if that's an inaccurate account of what happened, now I've got to ask a question. Being an inquisitive person, I've got to ask a question. Where was the partner? Where was the rascal that was involved with this? Why didn't, <laughs> why didn't they bring this man as well and throw them down in front of Jesus and say, hey, we caught these two in the act of adultery? After all, the law of Moses addresses both guilty parties. It doesn't just address one. And furthermore, the Talmud and the, and the, and the Mishnah, if you will, which codified Jewish laws, reiterate the death penalty for both who violate the law of adultery. The only means of death is differentiated strangulation for the man, which is hanging, and stoning for the woman. <clears throat> well, I, I'm going to submit to you three possibilities that might have transpired here, and you can take them for what they're worth. First of all, perhaps he escaped, which is very unlikely. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he escaped. That's unlikely. If they seized the woman, then they should have been able to seize the man as well, don't you think? I mean, there was a bunch of these religious fellows. The second thing was, perhaps he was deliberately allowed to go free. Hmm, that might be plausible. Since the men's agenda, these religious uh, fellows that were, were involved in this, their agenda was entrapment and not justice. And this certainly could be a possibility. And number three, the most likely possibility is that the male partner was one of the accusers put up to the immoral act beforehand to bait the trap. I kind of like number three. Now, let me take a moment and attempt to articulate the dilemma on which the religious leaders sought to impale Jesus. They're kind of on, on quicksand here. If he said that the woman ought to be stoned to death, two things followed. First, Jesus would lose the name that he had gained for love and for mercy and Never again would he be called the friend of sinners. The second thing was, Jesus would come into collision with the Roman law, for the Jews had no power whatsoever to pass or carry out a death sentence on anyone. Only the Roman government could do that. And if he said that the woman should be pardoned, it could immediately be said that he was teaching men to break the law of Moses and that he was condoning and even encouraging people to commit adultery. 
Jesus is on a tightrope now, and he's got to balance this thing. And this is the sum of the trap in which the scribes and the Pharisees sought to entrap Jesus. They thought they had him. They thought they had him tied up in a place he couldn't and by no means get out of without incriminating himself. Oh, how foolish of them. How foolish of them. You see, it is apparent, and here's Jesus' response. It is apparent that Jesus needs to choose his words carefully. So what he does, he pauses for a moment to gather his thoughts. He doesn't speak Irrationally, he doesn't speak off the top of his head. He pauses, he gathers his thoughts, and he, he, and his reply is one of the most frequently quoted of all the verses in the Bible. And here's what is said in verses 7 through 19 of John chapter 8. So when they continued asking him, I mean, this was something, this wasn't anything they was going to just let go of. They had him on a tightrope, and they were either going to get him to fall off, push him off, or he was going to have to jump off. One or the other. So they continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Oh, no, there's an angle they didn't think about. There's an angle they hadn't factored into the equation of this entrapment scheme they had going. And again, after he said this, he stooped down, and again he rode on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, some have suggested that when Jesus stooped down, took his finger and began to write, he was simply doodling in the sand out of embarrassment. Oh, no. No, I, I, don't, I don't ascribe to that idea not one iota. However, the term John uses is more specific. It is a Greek term which means to write down. And the prefix of that word can mean against. So as it does in the Greek translation of the Septuagint, if you will, of Job 13 and 26a, where Job says, Thou dost write bitter things against me. So could it be, could it possibly be that Jesus was writing the list of sins the religious leaders had committed? It has been said this way. Looking into the faces of those who stood before him, Christ sees into yesterdays that lie deep in the pools of memory and conscience. It's like he's looking into their mind and he's seeing their lives from months and years gone by. He's looking down the corners of their memories and he's seeing everything that they were involved with. He sees into their very hearts and that moving finger writes on the ground, idolater. That finger writes on the ground, liar. And it writes, drunkard and murder and adulterer. And as they observe, and as he does so, there is the thud of stone after stone falling on the pavement. Not many of the Pharisees are left, and one by one they creep away like animals, slinking into the shadows, shuffling off into the crowded streets to lose themselves in the multitudes because they have been found out. 
the very ones that had brought this woman before Jesus has had the tide turned on them. Does anyone condemn you? In verses 10, in the first portion of verse 11, John records that magnificent moment of matchless grace. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He captures that moment of matchless grace where compassion was evident and as at any as no other time in the Savior's history. In fact, it says this, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. They're gone. They're gone. You see, the contrast of characters stands out in a sharp relief. Here is a sinful woman standing next to a sinless man. And this scene illustrates so poignantly that deliverance from condemnation begins with compassion. You see, when legalism and prejudice condemn, violence and hate will attack. But when grace and truth confront, love and mercy affirm. Amen? Again, when legalism and prejudice condemn, violence and hate attack. But when grace and truth confront, love and mercy affirm. Does anyone condemn you? Jesus not only acknowledges this fallen woman's past, but he challenges her future. And Jesus said to her in the latter part of verse 11, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The only one without sin, the only one qualified to throw a stone, chose not to. The only one, my friend in your life, qualified to throw a stone at you, has chosen not to. The only one in the world that has the right and has the credentials to condemn any one of us, has chosen not to. Instead, he gave her words of grace and truth. Amen. In my opinion, there are three basic principles that emerge from this very sensitive confrontation with the woman called in adultery. First, confronting wrong calls for understanding and compassion not cruelty. Amen. The second thing is, condemning wrong requires humility and grace, 
not pride. Because many of, many of us can say, there go I, but by the grace of God. Third, correcting wrong begins with forgiveness and hope, not rebuke. And these passages about the adulterous woman illustrate the key verse that I used in the opening of this morning's message, which says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That ought to make us rejoice to know that grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. And through the illustration that I have shared with you this morning, we realize that beyond measure, His mercies are fresh and they are new every day. Amen. Like dipping a bucket into a bottomless well, we can draw grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from the brimming fullness of the Savior's compassion. You see, we can never exhaust the well of grace. We can never exhaust the well of His gracious Spirit. Amen. We just can't exhaust the well of grace that He has made available to us. No matter how serious the sin and no matter how unworthy we feel to approach Him, let me tell you, friend, He stands waiting to touch our parched lips with His tender mercy. He stands waiting to touch our parched lips with His tender mercy. I don't know about you, but I find myself drawn on His mercy and compassion each and every day I live. Amen. And I will close with this from Psalms 103, verses 8 through 14. Does anyone condemn you? The psalmist said this, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He said, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow. Everybody say that. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. And abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor Will He keep His anger forever? Oh, there's times of correction. There's times when He chastises us a little bit for our insurrection and our whatever it might be. But He's not always going to be beating on us. He will not always strive with us. Nor will he keep his anger forever. One of the more frustrating aspects of Sister Magina and I's boys growing up, and if you ask them, they'll tell you this, was that whenever I felt it was necessary to correct them, 
by whatever means of correction we deem necessary. They would always become frustrated with the fact that I could correct them one minute and be hugging them and asking them to go somewhere or do something with me the next. Finally, one time, our middle son, which he was kind of more, um, how do I want to say this? He, 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 uh, he, he would say things to me that the other two wouldn't say for fear, I suppose, but he was kind of gutless. Now, he, he had a lot of guts in that regard, I should say, but he said to me one time, he said, Dad, why don't you stay mad at us when we do something wrong? So there's no sense in it. We determine what the punishment is, we correct you, and that's the end of it. It's over. It's done. I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm not going to remind you of it tomorrow, the next day, whatever. We've taken care of business, and it's done. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. When it's done, it's done. He's not going to remind you next week of your failures last week. He's not going to throw them up in your face of your shortcomings because you, you lost control for a moment. He has not dealt with us according to our Whoa. The psalmist said, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. How many of you know that's true? How many of you think if you got what you deserve, you might be in big trouble? Oh boy. I'd be skin alive. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as, listen to what the psalmist says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. My goodness. And as far as the east is from the west, let's all stand. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. So as far as He has removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Then the psalmist says this, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. I said he knows our frame. He knows our limitations. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our comings and our goings. He knows our ups and our downs. He knows when you're having a good day or a bad day. He knows when all those thoughts are rushing through your mind and everything that's transpiring. He sees and knows all of that just as he looked through the corner of the minds of these religious and pious scribes and Pharisees who had brought this woman before him, trying to entrap him. He looked down the corners of their lives and he didn't see a sinless, stainless life, but he saw all of the issues that they had been involved with through their lives. But the Lord pities those who fear Him, for He knows 
our frame. He remembers. Listen to this now. He remembers that we are dust. He's saying, I remember that you're human. I remember that you are made from the dust of the earth. Hallelujah. Does anyone condemn you? If you're here this morning and you have been dealing with a with guilt over something that may have transpired long ago. If you have here today and your life is not what you would like for it to be. I'm telling you today, you can find, you can find hope, salvation, healing, and strength in Jesus Christ. He's not here this morning to condemn you. We're not here this morning to condemn you. We are here to let you know that in Jesus Christ, His mercies are fresh and new every day. Great is His faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. So as we worship for a few moments this morning, if you are here and you need to lay some things on the altar, put it under the blood and walk out of here and forget about it and never remember it again. I invite you to do so.